0: Well, good morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter nine. But while you're doing that, I want to encourage those of you who were able to come and join us last Sunday night for prayer. We had a time where we prayed for those who were sick and suffering, and we had um, maybe around 250 people here to pray, and that that is really remarkable for our congregation. I appreciate your faithfulness in that, but I especially wanted to thank and encourage those of you. Who are courageous enough to come to be prayed for. Um, that is a, a remarkable act of faith and humility on your part, and we greatly benefit from that. I ran across a bit of perspective on that from Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, As you may know, she's a quadriplegic, but she, I did not know this, she is able to drive her own van via Joystick. And she tells the story of going through a drive through window at a local fast food restaurant and explaining as she orders her food that she's disabled. And then when she gets to the window, explaining to the guys that, no, she can't take the change. They have to put the change in the bag for her because she can't move her arm. And as they put it in the bag, then she has to explain to them that they have to take, they have to reach out the window and place the bag between her wheelchair and the edge of the van the side of the van because she can't extend her arm to take that and when she's done she describes it and she says the guys are saying um are you set are you okay and she tells them, great job god bless you guys and she says they slapped the side of my van as i drove off and i glance in my rearview mirror they're waving goodbye and she says thanks god for answering prayer and then she says this she says this is the daily stuff of my life It always involves more than simply picking up hamburgers or the dry cleaning. It involves a chance to make God real to people, a chance for them to serve, to feel good about themselves, and to experience a new way of doing things. And last Sunday night, those of you who came for prayer, your courage in seeking prayer gave us as a congregation that chance to serve you, and we are grateful for that. Um, Because we are all learning how to trust God together, aren't we? That's a big part of what we are doing. So if you'll bow with me in prayer, that's our focus this morning is on trusting God together. God, come and show us how trustworthy you are through these encounters with your Son. May our faith be strengthened to the point where you are pleased with it. Banish the unbelief that's taken up places in our heart. We ask this in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. Today, as Daniel mentioned at the close of the service, we will be taking up our Journey of Faith capital campaign commitments for the coming year. Um, We are over halfway done now in paying off our debt, and that has been accomplished through many faithful gifts. North Wake does not have a lot of deep six-figure gift kind of pockets Um, Our debt is being taken care of by many small faithful gifts, Um, and we are deeply thankful for your faithfulness. But as a result of that, every single member's participation matters. It matters financially, no matter how small your contribution, and it matters because it's an opportunity for you to trust and honor and worship God. When I think about this whole Journey of Faith capital campaign thing, I think of it like a Swiss Army knife. You're all familiar with a Swiss Army knife? It's a, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tool, a knife with a tool inside or perhaps more. Uh, for instance, here's a picture of a Swiss Army knife. <laughs> this, is an, this is an actual Swiss Army knife. If you have $1,200, you can purchase this knife. Um, It has all 85 of the different tools that are available on a Swiss Army knife in one knife, including a golf club head cleaner and some kind of a cigar cutter with a double honed edge. I have no idea what that is. How is this like Journey of Faith, you ask? It's a tool inside of a tool. And our capital campaign, by virtue of its designation, is about paying off our debt. I don't want to underestimate the significance of that. But it's also, within that, it's about learning how to trust God. It's about training our hearts to trust God and to be gladly generous on whole new levels. It's a chance for us to strengthen our faith. And that's what I want us to think about together today. Two weeks ago when I last spoke to you, we looked at examples of little faith. Today I would like to look at examples of great faith, uh, both from Matthew. The first is in Matthew chapter 9. It says in verse 27, as Jesus passed on from there and He has just raised uh, a little girl from the dead. So the the tacit assumption here is probably there's a throng of people with Jesus as a result of such a miracle as that. In the midst of it are two blind men who followed Him, and they are crying aloud, Have mercy on us, Son of David! When He entered the house, the blind men came to Him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to Him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it, but they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. So the blind men here, what are we to make of them? The characters in Jesus' stories or the encounters in the Gospels with Jesus We are to see ourselves, find ourselves in these characters. That's one of the values that they have to us. They are either um, condemnable examples or commendable examples for us, sometimes a mixture of both. In this case, they're commendable. They are examples of great faith for us. And to get a sense for what, what this is like for them, think what it must have been like to be blind in the first century. There were no helps for you. There are no, um, no ease of access to facilities. There's no braille. There's no seeing eye dogs. There's no uh, canes, special canes for use. There's nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, and as a result of that, uh, they are living in darkness in a world that is decidedly hostile to them, and not just Physically. Blindness was often assumed to be the result of some sin in the blind person, and so that's projected upon them. Blindness is symbolic in the pages of scriptures of spiritual ignorance, and so that is projected on them as well. And as a result of being being blind, you are labeled immediately as an outcast and an undesirable. So we find these outcasts of society somehow caught up in the throng that's following Jesus, and they're crying out at the top of their lungs for mercy. Mercy. Mercy is undeserved favor. Typically, you seek it from a superior, and they are crying out to Jesus. They know that from where they stand as blind men in the first century, they both need mercy and are undeserving of it. They are blind and outcast and virtually helpless in every way. They are spiritually the lowest of the low. They are, as I mentioned, poster boys for spiritual ignorance. And so this is a beautiful combination, don't miss it, of desperation and humility. Humility. And it fuels their cry for mercy. And notice that it doesn't seem like they just cried for mercy once and Jesus heard them and healed them. They cry out for mercy while they're still out in the public place. But Jesus does not respond to them until they're in the house. Jesus did not heal them right away. They follow him inside the building, and this can't have been an easy task for a blind person to fight their way through the crowd and find their way into the building and then finally find Jesus somehow where they can speak to him and he can hear their cry. This is a model of desperate persistence. You get a sense that they likely could not be deterred from finding Jesus. In the other accounts, and there are others that are very similar in the Gospels, when a blind person sits by the roadside and they cry out to Jesus, they're often rebuked by the crowds. They're not helped by them. But these guys find their way in, through that crowd, into the house where Jesus is. And there, Jesus is waiting to heal them. You wonder why Jesus waited Why didn't He just heal them out in the street when He first heard their cries? It could be that He's looking for a more secret place to do these kinds of miracles because they tended to generate crowds based on the miracles, not on the miracle worker. But it may just as well be, and perhaps more likely, that He was waiting in order to draw out their faith. These men are desperate and humble and now... Persistent, and they really do believe that Jesus is able to heal. And that's the question of the hour. That's the only question Jesus asks of them Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they answer with two simple words Yes, Lord. These men hoped in Jesus and believed Him to be the Son of David. That's what they cried out, Son of David, have mercy on us. This meant that He was a Son of King David, and for them it meant He was the Son of King David, the Messiah. That's what that title meant in their day. The Messiah, as the prophet Isaiah had foretold, was one who would restore sight to the blind. In Isaiah 35, it says, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy when the Messiah comes. Jesus would himself offer these acts as evidence of his identity. When John the Baptist was in prison, he heard about these deeds of Jesus, and he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. And the first thing he says, The blind receive their sight. They believed that Jesus was the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, and as a result, they believed he could heal them. And so, Jesus touches their eyes, this is not evidently necessary. is not some kind of needful physical therapy that led to their healing, but more likely it's an expression of compassion. How long do you think it had been since anyone touched these men? They were outcasts. They were pariahs. And Jesus reaches out and he touches them, and in response to their faith, he restores their sight. And then, puzzlingly, he says this at the end of our passage. He says, He warns them sternly and says, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. This is the only time, one of the only times, where telling people about Jesus is forbidden. This is a unique situation, and it's not to be appealed to as a reason for you not to talk about Jesus to people. It's a very extraordinary set of circumstances, again, protecting against Um, rallying around, people rallying around these miracles rather than the one who was performing them. These two blind men, they believe in Jesus. They believe that He is able to heal them. This is not just intellectual assent. This is believing such that it affected their actions. It's a belief rooted in humble desperation so that they would cry out to Him, They would chase him down. They would persist until they had audience with him. And so, the question Jesus puts to them is now put to us. Do you believe that he can do this? Do you believe that he can heal your sickness? Do you believe that he can grant faith to your unbelieving mom or dad or uncle or aunt? Do you believe that he could save that atheist friend of yours from college? Do you believe such that it affects you, such that you cannot be stopped from coming to Jesus and having the audience with him where he can release his power? Is it a belief in his power that gives hope and perseverance to your prayers? Corey Tinboom put it this way She says, Somebody said to me, When I worry, I go to the mirror and I say to myself, This tremendous thing which is worrying me is beyond a solution. It is especially too hard for Jesus Christ to handle. And after I have said that, I smile and I am ashamed. When you stand in front of the mirror and you have that little self talk and you hear yourself saying, This is too big, this is too difficult even for God, even for Jesus Christ, the Son of David, to handle? Are you ashamed, and do you then snap out of it and persevere in bringing this matter to Jesus, or do you just nod and walk away in unbelief? Is there something or someone you have given up on that you should still be hopefully, persistently praying for? bringing to Jesus. These blind men, of all people, are our heroes in this. They are desperate, humble, hopeful, persistent, crying out for mercy from Jesus. They call us to pray prayers of great faith. And that takes us to our second story. That's exactly how Jesus describes the faith in our second story, which is in Matthew 15. If you'd like to flip over a few pages there. This story is about a mom. Jesus went away from where he was, withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out to him and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. That should sound very familiar to you. My daughter, she says, is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, "O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is a a fascinating story, but you cannot help but wonder, what in the world is Jesus doing? A woman comes to Him, a distraught mother whose daughter is suffering terribly by a demon. Mark tells the same story in his account, and he tells us that it's a little daughter, a young girl seems to make it even worse. So a mother whose little daughter is cruelly oppressed by a demon comes to Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He ignores her. And when he does deal with her, it's only because the disciples are frustrated with her, and they beg him to send her away. And then he just says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, which is in effect saying, I was not sent to her. See, she is a Canaanite. This is an ancient enemy of Israel. A people the Jews had been told to destroy when they first possessed the promised land. You remember the promised land? The land of Canaan? Back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, we read that the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save. Alive, nothing that breathes. You shall devote them to complete destruction the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites. That's the tribe that this woman is from. She is about as far from the house of Israel as you can get. She is their worst ancient enemy that they were commanded at one time to destroy. So when Jesus says he was sent only to Israel, He is leaving her out in the cold. Jesus elsewhere would indicate in his teaching that the spread of the gospel would come through a Jewish priority, and Paul would echo it in saying that the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. Perhaps that's in Jesus' mind when this woman persists. She comes before Jesus, and now she is on her knees before him pleading with him saying lord help me and jesus answers her it's not right for the take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs she is kneeling before him pleading for help for her demonically oppressed daughter and jesus still rejects her request he effectively calls this suffering mom begging on her knees before him a dog Now, this is disturbing and so disturbing that some scholars have noted that he's actually calling her a little dog, which is like a house dog. Think a Poodle. So maybe it's really not all that bad. I, I, I do not find that to be a compliment in any way what Jesus is saying. We are not told what Jesus is thinking. All we can do is see what His thinking accomplished in her. Jesus' initial rejection and His second rejection of her draws, serves to draw out her faith. Once again, perhaps like the delay with the blind men, it would seem that this is Jesus' great concern, to draw out our faith. It's a much greater concern than being nice to Him. Uh, there's a book title that's out by a fellow named Mark Galley. It's an opposition to an expression you've heard, Jesus, meek and mild. His book title is Jesus, mean and wild. And I think he may have in mind some of these very texts. See, God is like this sometimes. He tests us in the oddest of ways in order to draw out our faith. You you pick this up again. Let me take you back again to the book of Deuteronomy 13th chapter, it says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, gives you a sign or a wonder, the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he then says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. So far, so good, right? Here's the reason why. For the Lord your God is testing you. To know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That this false teacher, this false miracle worker, is sent by God as a test. This is a theme in the book of Deuteronomy. In, back in chapter 8, it brings out another theme related to this testing that's important for what we're thinking about today. It says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. So they had been wandering around, you remember, for 40 years lost. That He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. Humility and testing, they go together. His tests, the tests God brings to His people, are not nice, they're not fun, they're not expected, they're not predictable. They bring hardship and confusion in order to humble us and thereby draw out our faith in Him alone. It would seem, based on the outcome. That Jesus, in our story, is exercising His prerogative as God to test this woman, to humble her in order to draw out her faith. And her faith comes out beautifully, doesn't it? So much so that Jesus declares that she has great faith. Back in our passage in verse 26, Jesus answered her request for help. It's not right to take the children's bread, throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Here is this woman, this mother from a pagan land, likely a pagan herself in her upbringing. Some scholars believe that she's from a city of haves, a city that's wealthy, that economically thrived at the expense of the have-nots, which were the Jews of Galilee from where Jesus was from. David Garland uh, describes it this way. He says, the woman is therefore not just a Gentile, but a member of a resented class of privileged foes. She has a lot of Gentile chutzpah to ask a Galilean Jewish leader for help. It would be analogous to a rich Brahmin pulling up in a fancy limousine to a shelter run by Mother Teresa in India and insisting that she leave her untouchable charges to pray over her sick child. Would we be surprised if she were treated less than kindly? See, at this point, this is a woman who really has everything stacking up against her. She's not Jewish. She's quite possibly even an enemy of the Jews, perhaps an oppressor of the poor. She has no merit She has no leverage in this conversation, and Jesus, in extraordinarily harsh terms, reminds her of precisely that. She brings nothing worthy of him helping her. So how does she respond? She just says, yes, Lord. Two words. She accepts it. She doesn't get uppity and ask, how dare you call me a dog? Listen again to Garland. He says, if this woman does come from domineering high society, her acceptance of such a term as little dog for herself and for her daughter would be all the more remarkable. She actually agrees with Jesus' humiliating assessment. In fact, that's the basis for her plea that the grace of God is sufficient even for undeserving Gentiles. And if you haven't figured it out yet, if you haven't found your place in the story yet, that's us. We are the little dogs. We're the ones who don't even deserve mercy from Christ. She... She is our hero. She shows us the way. She brings nothing to Jesus except her daughter's great need and her own great hope in Jesus as the son of David. She comes humble, hopeful, believing that as the son of David, as Isaiah prophesied, he could set the captives free. And so she calls Him Lord and Son of David, comes desperate and humble and hopeful and persistent. She will not be deterred, not by the disciples, not by Jesus Himself. Let me ask you, what if Jesus responded as unhelpfully to your prayers as He did to hers in this story? What if he responded to your request by highlighting your unworthiness, your undeservedness, by saying, who do you think you are even asking this? Would you persevere? Are you that desperate? You know, it's an important question because we are all little dogs, in a sense, totally undeserving. Every one of us are great and prolific sinners, undeserving, without merit. Honestly, why would Jesus bother to help the likes of us, really? It is only when we recognize our absolute lack of merit that we are able to pursue Jesus desperately in humility and perseverance with our hope intact because our hope is in Him not in our merit. And as this woman shows us, we are right to hope for grace so lavish that even the dogs are satisfied. There is grace for the undeserving. There is grace for us if we will seek it desperately and humbly and hopefully and persistently. Garland says that Dwight Moody is reported to have said that Jesus sent no one away empty, except those who are full of themselves. He says, God helps those who confess that they are needy and deserve nothing. Many of us would be sorely tempted to walk away or thumb our noses at anyone who treated them with disrespect. Who wants to be likened to a dog? Who wants others to regard them as a spectacle of weakness? We walk away when we do not feel so desperate for ourselves or our children. We may convince ourselves that we can handle the problem on our own or find another means. Pride, Augustine said, changed angels into devils. And Satan uses pride as a favorite device for separating us from God and from God's help. Pride stiffens the knees so that they will not bow down and muzzles our voice so that we do not call out in humble prayer. Don't don't miss the point of Jesus' encounter with this woman. The gospel is for the nations. It's for everyone, especially, really, only for the undeserving. Jesus traveled all the way to her land, as best we can tell, just for this encounter. He traveled there, encountered this woman, and then the next words we read after this account are, Jesus went on from there. He traveled all this way just for this one difficult conversation, just to help this woman find humility and grace in her time of need. Do you know that there is grace available for you today i don't know how far it's been for you to come here what kind of path you took to get here but there is grace for you today if you will humble yourself and seek it if you'll confess your sin and your undeservedness you will find it you can come to know christ today In her desperate hope, this mother was unstoppable. You read the story, she's driving the disciples crazy. They're like, Jesus, just send her away. She's bothering us. Yet she persists. Her hope for grace for her daughter will not be so easily thwarted, not even by these disciples' objections. How about your hope for grace? If your prayers are not granted at first, if God seems distant and not to answer, do you just give up or do you persevere in hope? See, this mother, she's our hero. She's our example. She calls us to exercise great, hopeful, persistent faith, especially when we pray. I'd like to read one more story to you, and all I have time to do this morning is simply to read it to you without comment. It comes from Luke chapter 18, and it goes like this Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray, always to pray, and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? We could paraphrase that and say, will he find you praying desperately, humbly, hopefully, and persistently when he comes? Let's pray together. Father, increase our faith. Help us to trust in your power and your mercy and to never give up. We ask this in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. I, as Daniel mentioned earlier, we'll